week on miracles. And I just want to uh, throw in one or two ideas here yet, and if we get a little time later on, we can take it up in the discussion. But in kind of a summary, I think what we agreed on last week, as far as miracles are concerned, is that miracles are performed by God, and that it doesn't say anywhere that he has stopped performing them. He created the universe, and that was a pretty good miracle right there, and he keeps right on performing them. And the other point is that he wants us to ask him to perform miracles. Now, I'd like to suggest a helpful aid for Bible study that I have found over the years to be even better than a regular concordance, and that is a topical concordance. I'll pass this around so you can take a little look at it, where you look up a question, for example, like miracles, and then there are a number of passages in the Bible, not only that have the word miracle in it, like a regular concordance would, but other passages that refer to the topic of miracles. This is the Harper's topical concordance, there are others. Take a look at that, and it gets you going on all kinds of other ideas in this same connection. I also want to mention that the book on miracles by C.S. Lewis that I have here is one that I have in some supply here for my classes, and if you'd like to get it for yourself, please feel free to do so later. The price that I get it for is a dollar, so you may be interested in having that for your own reading. And then one other thing about miracles that I ran into this past week that I'd like to share with you. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the magazine Prevention. You hear it advertised a great deal on radio and television now. And it has all kinds of health food articles in it. And then, to my surprise, this month, one of the main articles in it is called Faith Healing is a Part of Good Medicine. And it is a book review of a new book by a doctor, Dr. C. Norman Sheely, M.D., in which he reports on an experiment of his at a clinic in Wisconsin. And it reminds me very much of the prayer test we were talking about last Sunday, where they were going to take people and pray for them and take others and not pray for them. This doctor actually carried out an experiment like this with patients in his clinic in Wisconsin, and not so much for uh, finding out the effectiveness of prayer, but finding out whether faith healers are as good as MDs in diagnosing disease. And his amazing conclusion statistically here is that medical doctors and faith healers for the patients that he had in his clinic were both 80% accurate in diagnosing illness in the clinic. He took people who had a pain in a certain part of their body, and he put him in a room and drew a picture of the person on the board with the parts of his body numbered, one, two, three, about eight sections of the body, then had the MDs come in, talk to the patients, they couldn't touch them, and try to find out where on their body the pain is. And they hit it 80%. Then he got the faith healers in, and they hit it 80%. And his message is that if we would combine faith healing with medical practice, we'd hit 100%. And that every good doctor should also send his patients to a faith healer. Now this is, an, this is a book just coming on the market, and there's a preview of it by the doctor in Prevention Magazine. Look at that, which is rather interesting. He also tried other people, by the way, astrologers. 
and they only hit 10%. And palmists and graphologists and handwriting experts, but only the faith healers, were equal to the doctors in diagnosing disease. And this, this is found to be a rather controversial thing. Then moving into today's topic, which is called Science and the Church, I want to report, first of all, what is very fresh in my mind, and that is last week's 1975 Nobel Conference. I knew it was an important gathering, but I had no idea until after I got there just how important it was. It turns out that only four times in the 75-year history of the Nobel Prize have these winners ever been assembled in any number in one place. Twice at this little college in Minnesota called Gustavus Adolphus College, which is a Lutheran school that Lutherans can be very proud of. I'm going to pass this picture of it around, and I see alumni smiling because it is a very beautiful place. And it was just an unforgettable experience. There were some 6,000 observers there from 300 colleges across the country, and 27 out of the 38 who said originally they would come of the Nobel Prize winners who are still living in science were there. And for two solid days, from early morning to late at night, there were papers and symposiums. And to my <coughs> great delight, I was given the opportunity to meet each one at the airport in a press room. And there were only two reporters in the press room. I thought it'd be mild, but maybe they didn't tell everybody where this was. And to have a taped conversation, I have enough material now for another book, The God of Science, for sure. <coughs> All Nobel Prize winners. And It'll take me some months to kind of assimilate this and to get back down from the mountain, so to speak. I'm going to give you a few of the highlights. I'll pass some of the pictures around. Uh, the first speaker was, and you may know him by sight, Dr. Glenn Seaborg, who has manufactured 10 elements beyond uranium and received the Nobel Prize for this. Then Dr. Polycarp Cush. He was a chemist, he is a chemist, Dr. Polycarp at Columbia University is a physicist. And I had a chance to sit at dinner with him one day, and when he found out that I was a Lutheran, he asked me, do you think that Dr. Teachin or Dr. Price is correct? <laughs> and I said, Dr. Kush, are you this knowledgeable in every religion, or do you have a specific interest in the Lutheran Church, or what? And we went on from there, and he's an amazing individual, not only in science, but in his knowledge of the doctrines of a great many churches, including such small and obscure branches of the church as the Campbellites in Missouri. Did you ever hear of them? I had a church history course many years ago where I heard about the Campbellites, and he goes into this. and very fascinating person. The next address was given by a winner in physiology by the name of Sir John Eccles from Australia. And he presented in his paper a new theory, uh, as far as I could tell, new to the people who were hearing it there also, called the brain-mind problem. He's coming out of the book next year on this, of his research in this connection. And it was, to me, the most meaningful paper of all because he said it is now clear that the human brain is not capable of understanding the human brain. <laughs> this would be, of course, he said, an impossibility for something to understand itself. And much less is the human brain, he said, capable of understanding the human mind. 
That's what he means by the brain-mind problem. The brain is a physical thing up here with electric signals and computer input and all. The mind is the person, he said. And it is supernatural. We have no way of testing it at the present time of how it operates or even where it is. But it is very clear, he said, that the mind tells the brain what to do. Because eight-tenths of a second, and I remember that number because it's a little faster than human reaction time, if you're really fast. Eight-tenths of a second, he says, before the brain gets busy doing something, like voluntarily lifting your hand or arm, there is a change in the electrical potential and voltage on the surface of the brain. And this, he believes, is an input of energy from the human mind and violates the principle of the conservation of energy in the universe. It is an addition to the energy in the universe from a supernatural source. And he can only reach the conclusion, he said, that at brain death, when the person physically dies, the mind does not die. How can it die if it's not physical? And he made one remark here. I want to mention that gets very close to what we're talking about. What happens to the conscious self at brain death? Is the self renewed in some other guise and existence? This is a problem beyond science, and scientists should refrain from giving definitive negative answers. So if anything was clear in the conference by all the speakers, it is that science has to stop at a certain point, and there are areas in which it must not give a judgment. It is a question beyond science. In fact, the whole mood of the conference was not optimistic. It was not like the World's Fair, that everything will be glorious in the tomorrow and everything. We're going to solve all our problems and we're going to just live in great luxury and comfort and peace of mind. It was not. It was pessimistic. It was a question of how long can man survive? And that science is not capable alone of solving the problems of energy and population growth or any other problem that man has got himself into. It was a pessimistic meeting. The fourth speaker was a theologian, Langdon Gilkey from the University of Chicago, who responded to these papers and his message was that not only science but all of mankind needs to repent. And he ended with a very beautiful witness to these assembled scientists in which he said, there is also the Lord who brings judgment on cultures that are too proud of their wisdom and their power, who gives the possibility of repentance and of new life to those who listen to that judgment, and who as with a captive Israel always holds out the promise of a new covenant, a new act, a new possibility in history that may redeem the times and bring light even to the future that is coming. See, the theme of the conference was the future of science. And the feeling was that the future is not bright and that 
we have to cooperate and become more human and penitent if man is to survive at all. There was also some controversy, and I haven't seen the local papers yet to see whether it reached this far. Dr. Shockley, who got his Nobel Prize for inventing the transistor, has become famous now for his very controversial views on genetics, in which he says research has shown that certain people are genetically inferior to others, and that the solution is to eliminate them by sterilization. And throughout the conference, he had bodyguards with him. And on the last night of the banquet, where the speaker was the new Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, Dr. Matthews, and some 1,000 people were at the banquet, I had never seen so many police and secret servicemen moving around. Because outside, there were uh, demonstrators trying to uh, disrupt the meeting, and particularly to get at Dr. Schaffer. <coughs> Then the most august individual there, perhaps, was the chairman of the Nobel Committee from Stockholm, Dr. Ulf von Euler, who himself has won a Nobel Prize in medicine with his study of nerve impulses. And as he mentioned, and as I started to say before, the meeting there at the Stavis Adolphus is not only a very rare occurrence, but it is the only officially sanctioned meeting of Nobel Prize winners in the world outside of Stockholm. The other three meetings that have occurred of these men, one of them was in Stockholm, another one was at Gustavus Adolphus 10 years ago when they inaugurated their Hall of Science called the Nobel Hall, and the fourth one was at the invitation of President Kennedy in the White House in 1962, and at which Time, and I'm repeating the story that the secretary said, so there must be some truth to it. When President Kennedy told the assembled Nobel Prize winners in the White House that this is the first time this many brains have been assembled in this place since Thomas Jefferson ate here alone. <laughs> now, Perhaps you'd like to make a comment about the meeting, and otherwise we'll move on to the other two topics this morning. The, the full proceedings will be published later, and my purpose there was to write a story for uh, the Aid Association for Lutherans, who sponsored this event. And the full report will uh, be printed in the spring issue of their correspondent magazine. So I think the Lutherans uh, came off well in that respect also, that uh, not only did the Aid Association pay for all Lutheran colleges in the country to send representatives, but they also had a testimonial dinner uh, to Mr. Walter Rutland, uh, who is the chairman of the board <coughs> has been so active in Lutheran affairs for so many, many years. Um, Dr. Oswald Hoffman was there throughout the conference and gave <coughs> a number of very fine Christian witnesses. And he also told a story about Walter Rutland, which I think bears repeating. And I asked Mr. Rutland later whether this is really true or if it's just one of those uh, dinner jokes, you know. But it turns out to be absolutely correct. Mr. Rutland grew up in a parsonage, a Lutheran parsonage. And there were, I believe, uh, six, what did I say, six and nine, great number of children in the household. And at one point uh, in the history of that family, 
the children got together and made a contract with each other and said that in order to see to it that each person in this household will get an education, they will all contribute a certain amount of money. All those beyond a certain age will put in $400, and those below that age will put in $200. And this fund will then see each of the children in the Rutman family through college. And as each one gets through, he pays it back so the next one can go through. Then when they have all finished their education, they put it all back together and give it to father and mother for their retirement. Now whether this helped him to start and get the Aid Association for Lutherans on its feet and there was a new policy or way of running the business, I don't know. But it was a, a very heartwarming story for the Nobel laureates and everyone present to contemplate. Now, uh, are there any comments or questions about it? I am also going to pass around a list of all of the laureates who were present and the field in which they won the Nobel Prize. And as I say, I had an opportunity to talk to each of these individuals personally and on tape and in their papers and banquets and so on. And uh, it was a, a once in a lifetime opportunity. Did your third speaker relate to mine? Oh, he stopped short of calling it that. And there were, of course, those who brought that up in the uh, roundtables later that uh, uh, Sir John Eccles, you are really talking about the human soul. And he said, no, I'm not able to call it that. I'm, uh, I'm not saying that you need any kind of uh, religion to interpret this. But I'm telling you that it is not physical. That's as far as he said it can go. But I agree with you, of course, he's talking about the soul. Now, one of the other laureates in responding to him also said, you don't have to call it supernatural, he said. There are other things that happen in the universe that we can't explain. And they could also be called supernatural. For example, when uh, substances decay by radioactivity, we have no way of understanding at the present time why one atom will decay and another one will not. It's almost like free will, he said. Two atoms sit there side by side and then one of them will say, well, it's my time to go. Because there is no way known today of changing the rate at which this occurs or the frequency or time or how to differentiate one atom from the other, that this one will sit here for a million years and the other one will change. He said, it's supernatural. But then Eccles responded to this by saying, the reactions that occur in the human brain are so much more complex than the decay of a radioactive atom that we cannot make it a parallel at all. He said. I would not even put it in the same ballpark. He said the complexity of the interactions that the mind impresses on the brain and the fact that of all the billions of possible genetic codes that a person can end up with at birth, that these should end up in such a way that every human being thinks of himself as an individual and thinks of himself as only one person instead of thinking of yourself as two or three at one time is beyond probability and therefore supernatural. There is the closest thing I have ever heard 
and from a man who was absolutely not disputed by anyone because he's certainly the top physiologist on earth. The closest thing I've ever heard of a scientific proof that man is more than a body. That there is a soul and that it cannot be defined in any known scientific terms today. And this is bound to have a ripple effect through science for some years to come now. Uh, a book by Eccles and Popper is going to appear on this theory in 1976. And Popper is the co-author who defines human existence in three terms. And he calls it world one, world two, and world three. World one is the brain, world two is the mind, and world three is the culture that you're immersed in. And the culture, according to Eccles and Popper, has a very small role to play, that you are mostly brain and mind, and only minimally culture. You cannot change yourself more than a certain, and they said it at 20% of your life is your culture. 80% is your genetic code. It's almost like predestination. They told the story of a girl, in fact, that was not in the papers. He said they carefully screened this from the media because they didn't want it to affect the outcome. They found a girl in San Francisco who had been isolated in an attic for 13 and a half years and was not allowed to come in contact with anyone by her neurotic aunt. She couldn't speak. She couldn't do most of the things that a child of one was capable of doing. A psychiatrist at UCLA took her over to see if he can make her normal. And after three years, he has concluded that he cannot. Her brain is just like every other brain. But her mind, he said, did not have the chance to interact for 13 years and make her a person. And the time in which this is to occur is past. And if you don't do it in those formative years, you will never accomplish it. So we are not as much shaped by our environment as we had previously thought. This was the message of Sir John Eccles. Now let's uh, move into this final topic that uh, I think has great relevance for us as a church body. If you look in the God of Science, you'll notice repeatedly that the people I spoke to, and this was true again last week, and I'm going to write to all the 27 laureates that I met last week and ask them this specific question in writing of where they place uh, their own religious views in relation to their activities in a church or other religious organization. They have to live out their beliefs, in other words. How do they do it? Do they do it in a, in a church membership or elsewhere? And if you turn to page 176, I've grouped together there several remarks in this connection. Well, here is the official color portrait, by the way, uh, of the assembled Nobel laureates. And you're getting a preview here of the cover of a magazine in this country. I won't say for sure which one yet. They're assembled before the Nobel Hall there in Minnesota. Warren says on page 176, many scientists are religious, but not by way of church religion. 
there is a strong difference between the church and religion. Westfall said, please distinguish between religion and the church. It's still true today that many people retain membership for some very superficial reasons. Baptism, matrimony, Christian burial, and so on. Van Eersel, a man who doesn't go to church can be very religious. <coughs> Wolf Heidegger, these, by the way, they're all Europeans so far. I distinguish very strongly between religion and the church. Waldman, on the next page, 177, the Dean of Science at Notre Dame University. I don't feel that I'm less religious now than I was 10 or 15 or 20 years ago when I was a good, faithful churchgoer. The Dean of Science at Notre Dame University doesn't go to church. In fact, he's not even Catholic. I went there, I wanted to get the Catholic viewpoint, and halfway through the conference, uh, he said, you know, of course, I'm not Catholic. I said, no, it surprises me. And he said, no, I'm, uh, I'm a Presbyterian. But, he said, I thought you came here to talk to me since I was on the crew that dropped the first atom bomb. So we stopped right there and talked about that and the feelings he had of guilt or innocence or whatever. And then a half hour later, Notre Dame's first, last, and only student demonstration took place right through his office. <laughs> That's another story. Uh, Hansen, president of Purdue University. In fact, uh, one of the theologians last week said, oh yes, you did the God of Science, and in it is Dr. Hansen of Purdue. And I said, how do you know that? Well, I'm at Purdue, he said, and he keeps talking about it. He says, many of my colleagues had long and illustrious associations with the church. And then he goes on to talk about how they became disenchanted with this. So this became a pervading mood of people who had been in the church or who felt that the church was no longer the way in which they could uh, work out their religious views. Now, why is this? Let's turn, what do they say? Let's turn to another page, 135. Ehrenberger in Germany said, the institutional church is administered by men, and everything that is made and administered by men is subject to error, no matter how highly placed the men are. Maybe we have a message for our synodical problems here. Davis, the only black man in this book, by the way, and I wanted to be sure, at least he couldn't tell me later he wasn't black, just like Notre Dame, I wasn't Catholic. He's at Howard University in Washington, D.C. Now notice the switch in his emphasis here. I attend church every Sunday, he says, but I do not have too much confidence in the people who represent the church. These people are nothing but human beings. They have all the frailties and weaknesses of human beings. We like to think of our leaders in the church as being up on a pedestal, but this I will not accept. So what are they saying? The distinction is that religion is of God and the church is of men. And we've got to try to put the two together. And not just scientists, 
Every person who has religious convictions has the problem of putting these two together. What does God say, and how does man put this into effect? Well, they don't always put it into effect very well. That we all know. And of course, we don't do it any better ourselves. We always like to think that we have the answer and that the other people are administering everything wrong, but then you take a crack at it yourself, doesn't come, come off much better. And maybe this is the thing we had better realize, that no matter who does it, even the omnipotent self will never come off perfectly. And the best rejoinder, I think, is if a person comes and says he's not going to join his church, is full of hypocrites, is to tell him there's always room for one more. <laughs> because we're not going to get anything but sinners in the church. The best story in this entire book on the church that I've used in many, many presentations is the one again by Hansen on page 140. And it deals with what the church ought to be doing, or at least try to be doing. The story's at the bottom of the page. Once I went to one of the campus ministry groups, and I should say that this was not at Purdue, otherwise uh, some people might say, well, let's look for this church in Lafayette, Indiana, where this was going on. He was still at Georgia Tech at that time. Hanson was at one time president of Georgia Tech University also. In fact, that's where I interviewed him. Atlanta. Once I went to one of the campus ministry groups where we were asked by the minister to evaluate the program for their youth. He told us that the week before they reviewed one of these new mod films from a downtown fine arts theater. They also sent a letter to some activist groups supporting the cause they happened to have and on and on. I asked him whether he happened to touch on the classical Christian concepts and he said they have a tough job selling that. They've had their fill of church and Sunday school and all of that. I said, Reverend, I think you're doing a beautiful job of selling Christianity down the river. Now, there is nothing wrong with becoming involved, he says, in activist groups and everything else to have opinions and to get people into the world. But to say that they have a tough job selling Christianity, and so you avoid that topic, you don't need a church for that. Action from what we're talking about in church is the way we talk about it. He's addressing himself to it. People are becoming more and more educated. The ignorant people in the past who couldn't read or write accepted what the church said like slaves or robots, but people aren't robots anymore. They think for themselves and they don't like phony people and phony institutions. And in many cases, the church is cold. It is too unconcerned. It says it is concerned, but it doesn't act concerned. It seems to want to isolate itself. It's afraid, and I don't know what it's afraid of. One of the speakers, and I forget which of the four main papers last week it was, said, at one time, the church was queen. And everyone was subject to the queen. Then the church was dethroned, he said, and science became queen. Now science has been dethroned, and we don't know what will be queen next, but it will not be the church again. 
You see, if you depose someone, except in Argentina, where sometimes you bring the old ones back, you don't go back to the same thing. Even the secretary of HEW said, and he divided, he's a historian, a PhD in history, and he divided the history of our country into three movements. He said our country started in the 17th century and up to the time of the revolution, it was the moral period. It was the time when the moral tone for our country was set. The precepts by which we operate. Then after the Revolutionary War and up to the time of the Civil War was the democratic period where people had to learn to govern themselves, where the Constitution had to be interpreted. Then from there on to the present time was the era of big government, where government became more and more powerful and controlled more and more of our activities. And now, he said, and he's trying to say that beginning with him, there will be a new movement, but it won't be any of those three. And I'm eager to see what it will be. He didn't say. He ended right there. He said, we've got to get away from all that. Because it has run its course. History has certain things that rise and fall, and another thing comes and goes. But it's never the same thing again. So these people are saying that the church, which was once queen, is doing some things wrong because it's trying to be queen again. Instead, it should be preaching Christ and him crucified. Not be discouraged that it's going to be difficult to do this and that the youth and everyone else says, oh, we've heard all that. So let's try and do something different. And the other message was that we had better do it in a way other than it was done in the Middle Ages, where the only educated people were the clergy and the doctors and the lawyers, and where the congregation sat there and listened to a person tell them what it says in the Bible because they couldn't read it themselves. Now we had better get input from all the people who are educated, because no one person is an authority anymore. They are all open to the Spirit of God through the word that they learn and their thinking capacity. It's a different age. And let's stop worrying about building kingdoms in the church and becoming queen again. And let's start worrying about making the Christian message an influence in an age where even the scientists who are in charge of the present think we're in the latter days that man may not survive. The one man said, how can science survive if man doesn't survive? Let's not talk about the future of science, let's talk about the future of civilization and how long it has got to go. Now what is being done? Well, certainly the Nobel Conference and other meetings of this kind are efforts to figure out what to do. There are others. There is a journal called Zygon which is devoted entirely to questions of religion and science. And one of the editors of this journal was there, and I talked to him for some time. In fact, he is a PhD in physics and a PhD in religion, and is one of the editors. And 
The things that are printed there, unfortunately, and it comes out of the University of Chicago, are for the main non-Christian, because Chicago, as you know, is Unitarian. Rockefeller was a Unitarian. He built the University of Chicago, and the School of Theology of Chicago is largely rationalistic. This is unfortunate. There are other efforts, however, where Christianity is trying to come to the fore more specifically. The World Council of Churches last month had a convention in Mexico City of theologians and scientists in which they tried to find ways uh, out of this dilemma and are formulating uh, policies that the members of the World Council of Churches can follow. And their recommendations, which are rather lengthy and we don't have time to look at right now, will be proposed at the World Council of Churches Convention in Nairobi in a few weeks. Now, it's not a Lutheran convention, but I think it's time we uh, began thinking of ourselves in the larger community of Christians, if the church is to be an influence in the world at all. Remember the, the demonstration of the birds and the migration and the stars? I got another letter yesterday from the girl that works there. And I asked her specifically, do you know the person who did the research on this indigo bunting and why he flies toward the north by the stars? And this is her reply. Yes, I do know these people and their research quite well. The story so definitely does reveal the hand of God in the entire universe. How perfectly he has planned everything to go together. The stars for guiding signals, the creatures lovingly remembered and provided for to receive the messages God set out for them in nature. It just opens one eye, one's eyes more and more to the wonder of our fabulous father. And it is so sad that such a brilliant scientist as Steve Emlin, who wrote that article in Scientific American, does not see God in it at all. Now we've come full circle here to what we said at the outset. A person cannot see this by himself. No matter how much science you study, God is not revealed to the person whose eyes are not opened by the grace of God. This is an absolute conviction I have from 10 years of talking to these people. They cannot come to the realization that there is a God by their own power. Luther said we cannot by our own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ or come to him. And even more, we cannot even see the hand of God unless the faith is there. That's what she's saying. Non-Christian scientists, she says, as you well know, keep searching for some other explanation of these natural wonders than the one and only answer, which is God. In Christ's name, Julia Shepherd. She'll be here next week on her way to Holland to study, and there's much more to this letter, to study the particular bird that she's an authority on in the world. She says, I tell Steve Emlin that Jesus Christ created ruffs. I don't know if you've ever heard of a ruff. It's the Eurasian waiter of shorebirds. And that they did not evolve with their lek mating system. I don't even know what that is. But they were set up that way by God, and goes on and on. Now, she definitely discounts evolution in her own view, but I, 
a want to leave that latitude, and we discussed this the other day too. I know Christians, devout Lutherans, who see God in evolution also. So this is her own interpretation. I think there is the answer. An individual who is a devout Christian and an accomplished scientist acting as a witness in her scientific community. <clears throat> and you get a group of people like that together in a building called a church and you have a powerful force for Christ. Not just by being together in joint worship, but then going out and being an influence in whatever profession or vocation it is, whether it is science or something else. Everybody is, I suppose, justified in picking a favorite chapter in the Bible. And I want you to listen to this one, which is mine, to see how closely it speaks to the questions we've been addressing these past weeks. It is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is sometimes called the love chapter. And I'm choosing the translation of Phillips because it uses the words uh, that we've been using. If I speak with the eloquence of men and of angels but have not love, I am become no more than blaring brass or crashing cymbal. If I have the gift of foretelling the future and hold in my mind not only all human knowledge but the very secrets of God, and if I also have that absolute faith which can move mountains, talking about science and now miracles, but have no love, I amount to nothing at all. If I dispose of all that I possess, yes, even if I give my own body to be burned, but have no love, I achieve precisely nothing. This love of which I speak is slow to lose patience. It looks for a way of being constructive. It is not possessive. It is neither anxious to impress nor does it cherish inflated ideas of its own importance. Love has good manners and does not pursue, pursue selfish advantage. It is not touchy. It, is not, it does not keep account of evil or gloat over the wickedness of other people. On the contrary, it shares the joy of those who live by the truth. Love knows no limit to its endurance, no end to its trust, no fading of its hope. It can outlast anything. Love never fails. For if there are prophecies, they will be fulfilled and done with. If there are tongues, the need for them will disappear. If there is knowledge, it will be swallowed up in truth. Distinction between imperfect and perfect truth, you see. Knowledge is what we know, truth is what there is. And here is the perfect scientific sentence. For our knowledge is always incomplete, and our prophecy is always incomplete. And when the complete comes, that is the end of the incomplete. When I was a little child, I talked and felt and thought like a little child. Now that I am a man, I have finished with childish things. At present, we are men looking at puzzling reflections in a mirror. And there is, I think, another summary of everything these laureates said. We're looking at puzzling reflections. 
The time will come when we shall see reality whole and face to face. At present, all I know is a little fraction of the truth. But the time will come when I shall know it as fully as God has known me. In this life, we have three lasting qualities, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of them is love. And it is certain, in a time when we're contemplating the possibility of the end of civilization through our own doing, that only the people and the church that teaches and practices the kind of love in Christ that St. Paul is talking about will endure and is worthy of enduring and will draw people to it, whether they're scientists or whoever they are because we all have the same problems and the same need for this love and have the same <coughs> glorious destiny if we grasp and practice it. Now, I said this is a matter of furnishing some answers. I would be very have we have a few minutes left in this wrap-up of what we've been talking about for your reactions. Could I just digress for a, uh, a minute? Uh, along the way, scientists seem to maybe not ignore but overlook certain uh, things that we look at, like, let's say, the protection of the species. They have the best time accepting the scopes uh, trial. And then also things like carbon 14. Uh, he was there, by the way, Libby. Uh, he isn't totally accurate either with his yeah. carbon 14. Yeah. I mean, some yeah, of the things I've read. And don't forget what you're going to say next. I have to throw this in because when I was talking with Libby across the table, something I always wanted to know is Libby's carbon 14 method a way of telling? that certain parts of the Bible found in the Dead Sea are really older than Christ himself. Because it's a very hotly debated thing whether we have any Bible, any prophecy of Christ that predates Christ. The margin of error is such that it can swing either way of the birth of Christ in the book of Isaiah found in the Qumran. And he told me, and there were other reporters sitting around to hear this, he said, by the margin of error, I cannot prove that the Dead Sea Scrolls are older than Christ. But he said, as the authority in this method, I believe it. And so you've just got to believe. Excuse me, not, uh, what other times? Well, well, now these were just the, the two instances I want to bring up. And I think the protection of the species is one of the very important uh, considerations, too. Uh, in your revolutionary uh, process. Well, I will say that of all the people I had a chance to speak to last week, uh, not one, well, one, one brought up an objection to evolution. Uh, and his argument is based on physics, on entropy. I have. Uh, our new textbook in physics has a front cover. It's called Entropy. It's designed on Madison Avenue. It's next year's publication. Entropy means that everything goes to pieces. 
I like to think of it uh, that my class starts down here all in pieces and gets organized by the time they finish and they know something. But no, they said it means that nature gradually disintegrates into random, non-usable energy. This is a principle called entropy. That's the exact opposite of evolution, which says that you start in disarray and go higher. That debate has not been resolved, and yet uh, only one person brought that up. But uh, I don't want to get into it because there are good Christians on both sides of the fence, and I'd rather not make it a part of this presentation. I also had a chance, by the way, for one dinner to talk to Dr. John Klotz of the seminary in St. Louis. And if ever there was a man under fire of the 67 Lutheran colleges at that dinner that night, it was people piling into Dr. John Klotz and asking him why Dr. Price and the seminary there are doing what they're doing. Now, I knew him long before that, and we had a nice discussion, but it really got into the synodical hassle afterwards. And Dr. Klotz is, of course, an anti-evolutionist in his writings as a biologist, as a PhD in zoology from the University of Cincinnati. But I think it could be another whole uh, symposium. I want to leave you with one or two things. Hans, if you want to get these out, please. Here's a little track. If you need something of a summary to give to somebody, I was asked to do this by the Concordia Track Mission a few years ago. And it's kind of a summary of what we've been talking about. And then also, if you would be so kind, this is an optional thing here, to fill out, and you don't have to do this today, this little questionnaire about our five weeks together. And if you wish, highly optional, put your name down, otherwise just react to the other questions and then bring them back uh, to the pastor sometime in the future so that eventually I'll get the benefit of your reactions. Now, I full well realize that we haven't had enough time to pursue some of these things. We surely didn't get enough chance to ask people their opinions about various things, but we were limited by time. If you have one of the texts, the God of Science, and are not going to keep it, please bring that back in today also. I want to tell you how very much I have enjoyed being here. It has been a real spiritual experience for me to be with you on Sunday mornings, and I hope that um, you will continue in, in such large numbers to pursue topics of interest for the church. And I can assure you that what has happened here has already gone out to other churches, and there will be similar groups formed on similar topics in Lutheran churches and others. So it was a kind of a pioneering venture. On behalf of the congregation, we certainly have enjoyed having with us the message you brought. Uh, I think it really struck us and uh, we wish you the best. Thank you. I uh, believe we've mentioned evolution before. Dr. Uh, Watts, for anyone that would like it, I think I can still find it at home.
film. I think I have it a tape on uh, Dr. Watson's spiel uh, on that evolution. He has a book called Genes, Genesis, and Evolution, which is kind of a classic. And another one called Christian and Modern Science, which is very good. Thank you very much.